Well, good morning. This morning I want to talk about discouragement. What is discouragement? Discouragement is the loss of confidence or hope. Discouragement is the, <clears throat> excuse me, the emotional response to disappointment. It's what you're feeling if you're a Bears fan. Cubs fans, Sox fans, well, I'll stop there. It's also what you're feeling if there's a seemingly insurmountable problem in your family. Or maybe it's a financial problem. This word discouragement comes from an old word that literally means no courage. Discourage. Courage less. So discouragement is a loss of heart. And it's important, a really important subject because it's a universal, it's a pervasive affliction that's a result of living in a sinful fallen world. So disappointment because of the world we live in, because of sin, because of all the dysfunction around us. Disappointment comes at us hard, it comes at us fast, it comes in all sorts of shapes, all sorts of sizes, all sorts of flavors. Sometimes it's just momentary. Other times it can go on and on and on. Uh, sometimes it can be from something little, an unkind word or just a line in an email. But at other times, at the other end of the spectrum, it can uh, be like what Rhonda and I uh, experienced on Friday afternoon when we were down at the ICU at Loyola Medical Center with a friend of ours named Tom. Now, Tom doesn't attend church here. Tom lives about an hour and a half uh, south of here. But we've gotten to know Tom and his wife, Karen, through uh, another ministry that I've been speaking for lately. And on Friday, early Friday morning, Tom's lovely wife, Karen, a 50-year-old, had a massive brain hemorrhage. They've discovered a, a massive tumor in her brain. And on Friday afternoon, as we sat with Tom in Karen's ICU room, Tom was discouraged, appropriately discouraged, really discouraged. But the problem with discouragement isn't merely that it makes us sad. The problem, that's why it's so important we talk about this and, and think about this, the problem is that left unchecked, it can become incapacitating. It can kill relationships. It can destroy your joy. It can threaten your life. And then sometimes in the church, now those of you that follow Christ, I, I, I'm speaking to you. Now, sometimes in the church, we have bought this lie from the pit of hell, this satanic lie that if I'm discouraged and I know Jesus, then that means I'm spiritually immature. And I want to say to you this morning, because I want to encourage you relative to discouragement, that nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, you see, if we buy into this notion that, boy, well, you know, because I'm going through this, I'm, I, I, I'm somehow falling out of favor with God or it's indicative of my immaturity, I, I want to say, be really careful. I know lots of pastors 
that struggle with discouragement. And we all have our Mondays, our down days, our, 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 our blue days. And so what happens in the church, if we, if we buy into that, if we head down that road just a little, uh, then we, man, we're not honest. And, and we stuff. And it just builds up. And we look good on the outside, but man, on the inside, we're dying because we're discouraged. And I want to say again, the Church of Jesus Christ isn't a country club. Wheaton Bible Church isn't a country club. We're a hospital, right? I mean, we get this. We're a hospital. We all need triage of some sort. As a matter of fact, I want you to see this in the lives of some of God's choicest servants. Let's start with Moses. Let's go back to this passage from the Old Testament. Moses is a spiritual giant. And Moses is speaking to God, and he says, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, he's speaking to God, okay? Please put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes, do not let me face my own ruin. I'd say the guy's discouraged. Now we go a little further in Old Testament history, and we come to the prophet Jeremiah. Now Jeremiah was a man's man. He chewed nails. He was strong. He he was uh, courageous. But there was a time in his ministry that he got so isolated, so cut off, felt so alone, so abandoned, that he begged God to take his life. Look at these words. Did I say Jeremiah meant Elijah? Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had it, Lord. I've had enough, Lord. I've had enough, Lord. Have you ever found yourself saying that? God, I've had enough. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Discouragement is no respecter of person, no respecter of gender, no respecter of education, no respecter of age, no respecter of socioeconomic status, no respecter of spiritual maturity. Moses and Elijah were giants. And frankly, one of the reasons God has given us the Psalms, one of the reasons we love the Psalms is because the Psalms, so many of the Psalms uh, uh, record different believers' battles with discouragement. So yes, discouragement is a choice. But it's the inevitable consequence of living in a sinful fallen world. And uh, discouragement in and of itself is not a sin. Even the spiritual giants of the land battle with it. Look at these words from this statement from Billy Graham. Billy Graham says, man, I have my moments. Deep discouragement. And and he goes on and he says, uh, so I I have to go to God and and ask God to help me. Our problem is not that we get discouraged. Our problem is that we somehow along the way have bought this lie that if you're mature, you never get discouraged. And so we're not honest. And we're not healthy because we don't know how to deal with our discouragement. And what we need is a word from God. And we have one right in the middle of this series on David. And we're going to look at an episode where this godly, courageous, valiant David is discouraged. I mean really discouraged. So grab a Bible, 
Turn your Bible on, and let's go back in the Old Testament to 1 Samuel chapter 27. If you're grabbing a Bible in front of you, a little north of page 290, I believe, depending on the edition. And what I want to do is I want to look at three things. I want to look at David's discouragement. We're going to look at the human side. Then I want to look at God's grace. We're going to flip to the divine side. And then I'm going to conclude talking about the cure. The cure for what ails us relative to discouragement. Oh, hey, thank you. Yeah, I do have to see what I'm saying, but I can't see well enough to know that I dropped them. (laughs) Thank you, brother. All right, we'll begin in verse 1, chapter 27. But David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Ashish, son of Moak, uh, the king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Ashish, each man and his family with him, and David and his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel and the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Ashish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of these country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in a royal city with you? Uh, David is conning Ashish, but that's okay. On that day, Ashish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in the Philistine territory a year and four months. That's why I've said this wilderness period lasts about 10 years, because David's in different places uh, for long periods of time. Here he's going to be in the land of the Philistines for not quite a year and a half. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gersites and the Amalekites, maybe the Mosquito Bites, and from ancient times... These peoples had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt, wherever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or a woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys, camels, and clothes. Then he returned to Ashish. When Ashish asked, where did you go raiding today? David was saying, now this is part of the ruse. David's about to say, man, I'm taking on the Israelites and the allies of the Israelites. And the reality is, He's quietly and secretly destroying Israelites' enemies. So he said, against the Negev of Jeramiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites, he did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Ashish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so odious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant forever. Now, when you begin to shade things and you're living in enemy territory, you know, you find yourself pretty soon in a difficult position. So look at the next two verses. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Asher said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army to attack his own people. And David said, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. So what we want to do is begin with David. I want to talk about David's discouragement. I want to talk to you about your discouragement or people around you that might be discouraged. And what I want you to understand, for starters, is that discouragement, this thing we call discouragement, comes from a variety of sources. Sometimes it's fatigue. Other times it's frustration. 
or maybe it's failure. Then sometimes it's fear. Here in chapter 27 in verse 1, go back to chapter 27 verse 1. That's the verse we're going to look at on this side, the human side, David's discouragement. I want you to see that David is fearful that he's about to be murdered by the reigning king Saul. And as a result, he's discouraged. So David says, I'm about to be destroyed. Saul's about to destroy me. Literally in the Hebrew, it's I'm about to be swept away. That's what discouragement is. It's feeling like you're out of options. It's feeling like you're about to be swept away. You're going to be wiped out. Now remember, David had been anointed king of Israel. And God had promised him an incredibly bright future. And now that David is being tested following the promises God has given him, David is running from Saul in the wilderness. And it's been difficult. It's been wearying. He's worn out. He's stressed to the max. It's been gone and gone week after week, month after month, year after year. And as I said last week, David is jobless. He's homeless. He's hungry. He's hunted. Not a good life. Probably in his late 20s here. We don't know for sure. Yet in the midst of all of that difficulty, David has experienced over and over divine intervention. He's experienced the power of God, the presence of God, the protection of God. And some of the most beautiful of all the Psalms David will write. He writes during this period and you read them. And they're full of faith and confidence in God. But here in verse 1, I mean chapter 27 and verse 1, at this moment in David's life, everything changes and David is flat discouraged. And using Phil's polar vortex theme as an analogy, man, there's a polar vortex that blows into David's life. And it freezes his faith. Freezes his faith. Notice in verse 1, there's not a single mention of God, but he mentions Saul twice. (laughs) This is a picture uh, of discouragement. David has taken his eyes off God, uh, off the solution, and all he can see is Saul. All he can see is the problem. So here the music stops for David. your problems, discouragement is when your problems become big and God becomes small. That's what's going on here. And it's always revealed by what's going on in your mind, what you're thinking. And for David, everything is Saul, 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 my problem, my problem, my issue. But there, there's more in verse 1. David makes here a controversial decision, doesn't he? I tend to think it's a weak, it's a bad decision. No longer believing God will protect him in the the promised land, he decides to flee to the land of the Philistines, Israel's biggest enemy at this point in their history. And in doing so, David crosses a line. And he puts in jeopardy both his reputation and his future. For many Jews, this will be unforgivable. The future king of Israel becoming a soldier in the army of Israel's enemies. 
what? And then as we saw in the first couple of verses of chapter 28, the problem really comes dicey because all of a sudden, David is being compelled by Asius, the, the king of the city-state Gath, to fight against his own people. Now, David is not saying, God, I'm done with you. I think what's going on is more like David is saying, God, I'm done with your plan. This hasn't been working. i got to leave. It's sort of like somebody who says, God, I'm not going to stop believing you, but I'm not going to church anymore. I'm going to go hang out in the bars on Sunday. Drink a little more. It's sort of a modern equivalent to what's happened with David. Not turned his back on God. But he's rejecting God's plan. So I want to make three comments here. And the first is, I want you to understand that no one, no one, no one can make this kind of stuff up. Nobody makes this stuff up. The recording of the embarrassing weaknesses of Israel's greatest king. Like here, we've seen some already, we'll see more. The recording, the record, the expose of, uh, of David's uh, greatest uh, weaknesses, huge weaknesses. I mean, here he's taking refuge uh, in Israel's greatest enemy. Is a strong, all of that is a strong, strong argument for the historical reliability of this story of these stories. Because if you're trying to make a case for Israel and David's exceptionalism, you want to make David look good. But the Bible isn't a political document. It's a spiritual document. And exposing David's weaknesses at the very moment Israel is building a case for David's reign as the king demonstrates that this is fact, not fiction. And today, we tend to think religion is a myth. Stories like this are fables. But conversely, science is fact. All sorts of problems with that. But what I want you to understand here is that Exposing of David's weaknesses is strong evidence that this is historical fact. And it's why we believe the Bible is God's word. Comment number two. Uh, There is a close relationship between self-talk and discouragement. I want you to see this. Go to the first line of verse 1 in chapter 27. The very first line. David thought to himself. David thought to himself. He didn't say anything, he thought. And then the rest of verse 1 are David's thoughts, David's self-talk, if you will. Your daily emotional state, your daily quotient of belief or unbelief depends upon what you fill your mind with. What thoughts you cultivate. The sermons you preach to your heart. And you are always preaching sermons to your heart. 
It's your self-talk. The biggest challenge in your life is never your circumstances. It's always your response to your circumstances. And your self-talk is key to your response. Let me show you an example of positive self-talk. This is Psalm 42. It's not a Psalm of David. It's a Psalm of the sons of Korah. But look at this. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? So here we've got a guy that's discouraged. He's speaking to his soul, speaking to himself. And aware of the discouragement, look at what he says. Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So what we have here... In Psalm 42 and verse 5 is an illustration of believing self-talk. What we have in chapter 27 and verse 1 with David is an illustration of unbelieving self-talk. All he sees is Saul, 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 Saul. It's what we do when we say this thing, this person, he, she, it. And that's what we think about. That's what we focus on. That's what we dwell on. Now, disappointment is inevitable, but discouragement is a choice. And, and, and discouragement is a function of self-talk, and self-talk is a function of your faith. It's a function of your focus, and that's what we see here negatively in this first verse. Now, for those of you that come from challenging, difficult families of origin where you didn't experience a lot of love, you didn't experience a lot of encouragement uh, growing up, you know how painful it is. You understand how terribly painful it is when others tell you you're no good. Or that you don't measure up. You know how difficult that is. But what's impossible is when that becomes your own self-talk. Eugene Peterson once said, all the water in all the oceans in all the world cannot sink a ship unless it gets in to the inside. All the trouble in all the world can't harm your soul unless it you unless you let it get inside so men and women uh, you students guard your self talk what you what you say to yourself guard your thoughts take your thoughts captive to the word of god memorize verses be a student of the bible memorize psalm 42 verse 5 Fill your mind with God's word. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Here David is setting his mind on the things that are on earth. So the issue ultimately isn't discouragement. The issue is your mind. And what I want you to see is David here momentarily has lost the battle for his mind. Saul, Saul, Saul. Comment number three. Now, here I, I want to talk to you about friendship. I, I want to talk to you about um, 
how you come alongside people around you that are discouraged. And the statement I want to make is, be aware of the limits of being an outsider. Tread lightly. Now, this isn't unique with me, but it's important to say here. Uh, if you are an outsider to a conflict, uh, the solutions will always look much more simple to you on the outside than they are on the inside, right? But, 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 but we forget that. Uh, so let me illustrate that. Take the Jews and the Palestinian conflict. Why can't these people just get along? Uh, uh, the outside, the solutions look really simple. You got some co-workers going at it uh, uh, at, at work or, or, or some friends of yours. Their, their marriage is in a crisis. On, on the outside, things always look easy. Much more difficult on the inside. But here's the problem. Here's the trap. Hear me in this. The danger for you as an outside is to assume a sense of superiority. Man, come on. Uh, just get along. And I, I want to say to you that that's arrogance. And that is not what people who do are discouraged need. David's situation was incredibly complex, difficult, mind-numbing. He'd been fleeing for his life for years. He felt like he was out of options. Now he had 600 men. They had wives. They had children. David was providing daily food for 2,000 homeless people. You think he was stressed? We've got to be careful of being judgmental. You see, discouragement is heart disease. And the, in, uh, the issues of the heart are extraordinarily complex. And you will do the discouraged people around you no favors if you assume an attitude of superiority and say, just get over it. You're only going to make a bad situation worse and that's not what being a friend means. Okay, that is the human side of chapter 27. We've looked at one verse, verse 1. The human side is David and his discouragement. So we see David fearing, we see David fleeing, going to the land of the Philistines. But this is only half the story. It's only always half the story for the child of God. Because there's a divine side. And the divine side that we're going to see is God's grace, God's providence, God's uh, faithfulness. Because here we're going to see God intervening and God protecting David in spite of himself. And as we come to this divine side, there's a verse in the New Testament that really illustrates um, holding the tension between the divine side and the human side. Put this up. It's from 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is the story of my life. It's the story of your life. It's the story of David. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful. For he cannot disown himself. At the end of the day, it isn't about my faithfulness, your faithfulness. It's about resting in God's faithfulness because God cannot deny himself. He is infinitely faithful. 
What we have here in chapter 27 is an Old Testament illustration of this principle, this important spiritual principle. So just as we've looked at one verse, verse 1 on the human side, now I want to look at just one verse for the divine side. So look at verse 6 in chapter 27. Go back to it. On that day, Ashish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in the Philistine territory. This is just remarkable. A year and four months. A year and four months. Now, when David takes up residence in Ziklag, he isn't where he wants to be. He isn't even where he should be. He's boxed himself in. But that's not the point. The point is he's exactly where uh, God will prove to be grace, to be faithful, uh, where God uh, will protect him, where God will rescue him, where God will strengthen him, where God will recalibrate David, where God will feed him, where God will protect family at these hundreds and hundreds of families. So Ziklag was in the heart of enemy territory. It's a terrible place to be. But in the hands of God, it's not just a dangerous place. It becomes a wonderful place. A place of refuge, growth, protection. And where God's will for David and for the people of Israel is furthered. Now, none of this is explicit. Here in verse 6, I mean, there, there's no mention of God in verse 6 explicitly. But that's just how God works in all of our lives all of the time, right? It's not overt. But when we look back over the years, we are able to say, you know, I, at the time I didn't see, I, I, I didn't understand it, and I, I didn't see it, but boy, did God work there. Boy, did God do that. Sometimes it's overt. Usually, it's much more subtle. Uh, but what, what we're seeing here and what the author is trying to help us understand is that God is always faithful. God is always faithful. He's always protecting his people. He's protecting David. Testing, but protecting. As a matter of fact, let me just jump to the next chapter because it's one of the craziest chapters in the Old Testament. And we're not going to take the time in this series to go there. Uh, but here, Saul, having outlawed witches and mediums, goes to a witch. Now, this isn't an endorsement, okay? It's an illustration of how far he has fell. And the medium, this witch, calls up the prophet Samuel from the dead. And Samuel comes, and Samuel speaks to Saul. And I want you to see what is said in chapter 28 and verse 16. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? Now notice that language. It's one of the reasons I think Saul is lost. He's called here the enemy of God. The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. They are going to die in battle. 
Now, the point of chapter 28 isn't anything to do with witches or mediums. The point is to show that God is accomplishing his purposes for David, even when David doesn't know it. Because David doesn't realize in chapter 27 that in just a couple of days, Saul is going to die. And so what we see in these two chapters is the author is telling us, in spite of our lack of faith, our faithlessness, God remains faithful. And God in chapter 28 is closing the door on Saul, opening the door for David. And Ziklag, this difficult place, becomes a necessary place where God is behind the scenes accomplishing his purposes. And I want you to understand that David's story is your story. Your story is David's story. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is there's always a human side and there's always a divine side if you know Jesus Christ. We see the human side. Often we miss the divine side. And the divine side means God, the God of the universe, has your back. No random molecules in the universe. No random events in your life. And this brings us to the cure. What is the cure for discouragement? The cure is understanding that just as God provided Ziklag for David, God has provided not a city, but the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, His Son, Jesus Christ, for us. God crushed his son. Not because you and I are faithful, but because we're faithless. And Jesus on the cross took upon himself all our missteps, all our discouragement, all our misdirection, all the times we cross the line, all our sin, all our dysfunction. And the good, news, the, the good news of the gospel is that when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we say yes to Jesus and embrace him by faith as our Lord and Savior, he forgives us, he makes us righteous in, in God's sight, and he will never abandon us. He will never forget about us. He will never lose us in the press. He always protects us. And Jesus is our refuge. So the cure, the cure to discouragement is locking your eyes on Jesus. He is the pinnacle of the divine side. He loves you so much, he died for you. And as Jesus said, let's put Matthew chapter 11 up on the screen. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, 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 and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let me show you, let me read to you what this looks like. Yesterday, having been with Tom the day before, he sent this message. Robin Rhonda, Karen and I have only known you for a short time. 
When we met and laughed together, I had no idea how God would use you in my most desperate hour. Through our conversation yesterday and several other key people in my life, I have just been called out by God, and I'm terrified. Pray for me that I will not be the ever-cowardly Christian in sharing the gospel as person after person reaches out because their lives have been touched by Karen. Karen was an executive in the city of Chicago. She was a former executive assistant to Ann Graham Louts, Billy Graham's daughter. Wonderful woman. I would give my own life for hers as she lays helpless in the hospital bed. Please pray as I attempt to live out the faith that you so clearly defined for him yester me yesterday. Please pray that God would give me the strength to share with people what my wife's life has stood for and how desperately she wants them to come to know the God, the Christ, who has given her life beyond the failing body that they see with their eyes now. This is a person that gets what it means to come to Jesus in the midst of life's greatest discouragement. What Ziklag was to David, Jesus Christ is to us. Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Let's pray.